Lord, we're grateful uh, just for things like technology. I mean, that through our phones, we can broadcast live uh, to the internet. It's pretty amazing. Lord, I'm thankful for all the people who are actually behind that camera right now um, who are coming here this morning and are using their skills and abilities to make this uh, happen and to do this well. And so, Lord, we just pray that as we all read your scriptures right now together, uh, even from the comfort of our homes, and as we all think about what your word has to say, that, Lord, your spirit would still unite us together, and that, Lord, you would just build our faith up. And, Lord, I pray specifically um, when it comes to the text that we're going to read this morning, would you just through this scripture and by your Holy Spirit speaking into our hearts right now, Lord, would you teach us what true Christ-like forgiveness looks like? Would you help us to understand that and help us to see where that needs to be applied in our lives? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so a while ago, uh, I saw this really neat YouTube video. And on this YouTube video, it was explaining the physics of dominoes. Okay, and so here's the deal. On this video, the guy was explaining that a domino is able to knock over another domino that is 1.5 times its size. All right, so to demonstrate this, what he does is he takes uh, 13 dominoes and he puts them in a row. And the first domino is five millimeters tall by one millimeter thick, so very, very small. But the 13th domino in the line is about a meter tall, five inches thick, and it weighs over 100 pounds. And so to demonstrate the physics of the domino effect, he ever so slightly knocks that tiny domino over, and the domino effect takes over. That energy is compounded, and it eventually knocks over that 100-pound domino. And what's crazy is if there were 29 dominoes in a row, that 29th domino would be as tall as the Empire State Building. And so when you go from one tiny domino to the 13th domino, he's explaining that the energy is multiplied by 2 billion in order for that 13th domino that weighs 100 pounds to be knocked over. So it's a fascinating experiment of how the smallest domino can turn into really an unstoppable force. Have you ever had a uh, friend, a family member, coworker, a relationship in your life, and the smallest quirk, the smallest annoyance, the slightest offense, maybe that small comment that was made, created a bitterness in your heart, a distaste in, in your mouth or, or their mouth? And because that went unaddressed, the, the smallest rift turned into something that ended or forever changed the relationship. The smallest frustration turned into an unstoppable force. This happened one time in my life. Um, my roommate, my freshman year of college, is one of my best friends from high school. In high school, we hung out all of the time. And then when we got to college and we began living together in the same dorm room, you know, we started to frustrate each other a little bit. We started to rub each other the wrong way. And we ended up forming different friend groups. We ended up getting involved in different activities in college. But I began to fixate on all of the things that I did not like about this person 
rather than just being a good friend to him. And through college, our friendship just kind of got more distant and we stopped talking. And even to this day, we haven't spoken to each other since college, even after repeated attempts from me to reach out and apologize. In my heart, the smallest of annoyance turned into an unstoppable force that ended a close relationship. And I'm really, I'm really sad about that today. We have a problem in our culture today. And that problem is that when these small cracks form in our relationships with other people, we would much rather ignore it. We would much rather it go unaddressed, maybe hope that that crack would itself heal by itself without addressing it directly, without addressing it swiftly. And unfortunately, all of us probably have experiences where a small crack has turned into an unstoppable force that destroys relationships. In the final paragraph of Ephesians 4, Paul is concerned about this very thing happening in the church. We've been studying Ephesians 4 together for several weeks in this series called Called to Belong. And the point of this study is to see how every follower of Jesus is called to belong to a local church. And in these final verses of the chapter, Paul gets very practical and gives us some very specific warnings when it comes to how these small spats that we have with other people can rip apart a church. And so if you go to your Bible, Ephesians 4, look at verse 25, because verse 25 kicks off this paragraph, okay? So let's read that so we can understand the ultimate point of what Paul's trying to make in our text this morning. So Ephesians 4, verse 25 see it on the screen, it says this, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. When Paul says that we're members of one another, he's referring to this analogy that he uses all of the time where he compares the church to the human body. A human body is unified whole, but it has many different parts and many different functions. And the people of the church are like individual parts of the body. So you have feet and legs and hands and ears and eyes. And although these parts are different, they all have different shapes and abilities. They are all equally important for the body to function properly. Uh, if you go back to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, it's exactly what Paul says. He says this. He says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him, into Christ, who is the head, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And as followers of Jesus, we are called to be a part in that body. We are called to be a part of this body of Christ and to work in unity with the rest of the parts of the body so that everyone in the church is built up in love. So if you go back to verse 25, Paul tells us that since we are members of one another, we are members of the same body, we need to stop speaking falsehood to one another, stop lying to one another, and start speaking truth to one another. John Chrysostom is an early church, third century uh, early church father, and 
he said this in reference to this verse. He said, if an eye sees a serpent, does it deceive the foot? If the tongue tastes what is bitter, does it deceive the stomach? See, our bodies work in unity. If my eyes see a serpent, it is going to communicate the truth to my foot. And what's going to happen? Well, it depends on who you are, fight or flight, right? Either you're going to stomp or you're going to run, but your foot is going to react. And the point is that the body is to speak truth to one another so that it can operate in unity. It can build itself up in love. And most importantly, I think, it can protect itself against the schemes of the enemy that desires to see the church destroyed. And so as we read the rest of this paragraph, Paul is going to warn us about three diseases that can find its way inside the church, that can infect our hearts, and those diseases will create cracks in the armor of the unity of the church. And if those cracks go unchecked, if they go unaddressed, if they are not mended properly, the domino effect can take over, and it can create a lot of damage and a lot of pain in the church. So for our time together, we're going to look at these three diseases, and then we'll take a look at the cure that Paul tells us about. So here's the first disease. Disease number one is this, vengeance. Vengeance. Look at verses 26 and 27 of our text. Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Jump down to verse 31 real quick. Paul says, let all bitterness, all wrath, all anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. All right, so this is an interesting text because obviously Paul does not warn us against anger because anger within itself is a sin, but anger seems to be a very easy pathway for us to sin against one another. And so this is why he tells us, don't let the sun go down on our anger because when anger festers and goes unchecked, look at verse 27, it says that we give an opportunity to the devil. So the imagery here in verse 27 is like a, a foothold. So in rock climbing, if I'm trying to climb the face of a rock, I'm going to look for cracks in that face of the rock to put my fingers in and my feet in so I can exploit those cracks for me to be able to climb up the side of the mountain. And so it's the same imagery here. Okay, when our anger begins to fester in our hearts and we have anger against one another, that becomes a foothold for the enemy. So there's cracks in the unity of the body of Christ that the enemy can get his fingers into and his feet into and begin to exploit those cracks for what he wants to accomplish. And that is the destruction of the body of Christ. So Paul doesn't say anger is a sin. But anger should be something that we should take care of immediately. He even goes to say, really in verse 31, just put away all anger. But here is where I think anger goes from just being an emotion to being sin. And that is when our anger gives us a desire for vengeance. We want the person that we're angry at to be punished. 
We want them to suffer. If you look at verse 31, Paul lists some ways that we seek vengeance in the midst of anger. Uh, He says bitterness, right? Just that perpetual state of resentment in our heart. And that causes us to do things like give people the silent treatment or be passive aggressive or things like that. Talk about them behind their backs. He talks about wrath, the idea of just raging out against someone, letting your rage pour out on someone that you're angry at. Or clamor, that's just raising your voice against someone, slander, gossiping about them. And so here is the theological problem with vengeance in the church and why it is a big disease that can be so damaging inside the church. Uh, In Romans chapter 12, verse 19, it says this. It says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, declares the Lord. Our God claims the right of avenging sin, and we do not have that right. And he has told us that every single sin ever committed by every single human being will be properly judged and avenged by God himself. And that's going to happen in one of two ways. Uh, If that person has faith in Jesus Christ, then their sin is transferred to Jesus as he hung on the cross, as he bore the wrath of God, and God avenged that sin as Jesus suffered on the cross. If that person is not a follower of Jesus, then their sin will be avenged on the day of judgment when God in Christ returns. But the problem with seeking vengeance against your brothers and sisters in Christ who have already had their sin avenged by Christ on the cross is this, that you are saying that the blood of Jesus was not enough to pay for their sin. When vengeance is in our heart, that's what we're saying, right? That more wrath, more punishment must be endured by this person for that sin to be forgiven. And so when we hold grudges, when we talk about others behind their back, uh, when we give people the silent treatment, we have ceased speaking truth to one another, and we've begun lying to one another, speaking falsehood to one another. We have begun to say through our actions that the gospel isn't enough for your sin. Vengeance is a disease that begins to displace the gospel from the center of a community. It's a crack in the armor that cannot go unaddressed. Disease number two. Disease number two is selfishness. Take a look at verse 28. It says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Uh, Last week, we looked at this verse specifically, and we looked at the stages of change that someone goes through in as or as they grow in holiness. And this week, I want to look at this verse again, but I want to ask why Paul used the example of stealing specifically as he was writing uh, this letter. And when you look at the example in verse 28, and as we noted last week, we see total transformation in this person. 
Formerly, this person was a thief who was taking for others for himself. Now this person is laboring so that he can have something to give to others. It's a complete transformation. And the disease that I believe Paul is warning about here is selfishness. Um, As we go about the life in the church, the question I think sometimes that we need to ask is, do I have the heart of a thief? Not maybe that I'm actually stealing something physical, but do I have the heart of a thief, a heart that seeks to take from others for my own benefit instead of give out of what I have to others? We've already talked about this a lot in this sermon series, but I believe that our culture has infected our hearts with a thieves' mindset in how we view our involvement with the local church. I think we can have a propensity towards this. We join the local church with the expectation that we will receive spiritual benefit from others in the church, and we can be quick to speak ill of a church if we're not receiving what we think we need. But the biblical vision of the church is that we are all parts of the same body. We have different roles so that we are all fed and cared for. Meaning that the mindset in the church cannot be, hey, what can I take for myself? But it is, how can I use the gifts that God has given me and the resources that God has given me so I can benefit and bless the others around me? And so when we come and gather on Sunday mornings, the idea of I don't show up at church, I don't show up at my community group or other things just for me, but I show up for the other people. I show up so they can be encouraged. I show up so I can check in on them. I show up so I can pray for them. I show up so I can be with my church family. That kind of mindset is pretty countercultural in our day. And so it's easy for our hearts to be infected with this selfishness that causes us to be more concerned about our own personal spiritual health than those around us. And that selfishness is a crack in the armor of the church that can be exploited. I mean, if everyone is a part of the church just so that they can be served, then no one's going to be fed spiritually. But if everyone is there so that they can be a part of giving of what they have to others, then everyone is going to be cared for in the church. The third and final disease here is malnourishment. Malnourishment. Look at verses 29 and 30. Paul says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. If you notice in verses 26 and 27, Paul connects the presence of anger in our hearts with giving an opportunity to the devil. And here in verses 29 and 30, Paul connects what comes out of our mouths with grieving the Holy Spirit of God. So as followers of Jesus, we've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It's what the Bible teaches us. And the Holy Spirit plays a number of different roles in our lives. Uh, The Holy Spirit is a helper who leads us to live lives that glorify God. Galatians 5 uh, tells us to keep in step with the Spirit, follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is also a seal on our lives that Paul mentions here In verse 31, he is a mark on our lives that we belong to God, that that we are his. 
So when corrupting and foul language comes out of our mouth, it grieves the Holy Spirit of God because the Holy Spirit of God is supposed to be the one that has control of our hearts. And Jesus has told us in Matthew chapter 15, verse 18, that what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. When we use our tongues as a way of tearing others down, it's a window into our heart. We see what's actually in there. And it's an indication that the person who is speaking this way is not following the leadership of the Holy Spirit, but their flesh has taken control. And so I see this as a disease of malnourishment because I believe when we fail to fill our minds and hearts with the things of God, we slowly forget the sound of the Holy Spirit. I mean, his influence over our hearts becomes less obvious and we begin to treat each other and speak to each other like the rest of the world and not like we should as brothers and sisters in Christ. So if we're not filling our minds with God's word, if we're not bringing our circumstances in life to God in prayer, if we're not being regularly encouraged by the people in the church and helping us build up our faith, then our hearts will become more influenced by the world than the Holy Spirit, and our tongues will be the first sign. So malnourishment and a loose tongue in the church is a crack in the armor that must not be ignored. And James warns us of this very strongly. James chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, James says, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, the domino effect. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. And so we have three diseases here that Paul has warned us of. Vengeance, selfishness, and malnourishment. All three of these diseases can put a crack in the armor of the church, and if it's left unaddressed, it can do a lot of damage in the church. But we have to be realistic. We are people who still deal with sin. These things are going to happen. These diseases are going to find themselves inside the church. And so the question we need to ask is, what is the cure? What do we do when this happens? What is the immune system that God has built into the body so that when these things happen, when these cracks form, we can properly mend them and keep the body of Christ unified? And Paul gives that to us in verse 32. He says this, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, look at this, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The cure for these diseases in the church, I want to be very clear, is Christ-like forgiveness. See, the, the kingdom of God is backwards when you compare it to the world. Uh, in the world, if someone were to do something that made you angry, if someone were to act selfishly, if someone were to say something offensive to you, in the world, the offending party is the one who must do something to make amends and make it right. But God demonstrates to us a different pattern in and through Jesus. As God's creation, we have sinned against him. We are the offending party. 
But God does not wait for us to somehow make things right with him because that would be impossible for us to do. He is a holy God. We cannot work our way back into God's uh, reconciliation with God. So rather, in the grace of God, he makes the first move. He provides a way at great cost to himself that we can be forgiven of our sin through his son Jesus. The offended party makes the first move to the offending party. So in the world, we expect the offending party to take that first step towards reconciliation and do it at their own expense. But God reverses the whole pattern. This is what differentiates Christ-like forgiveness and forgiveness as maybe the world would define it. A counselor that I used to see helped me understand this um, in this way. He said, let's say I grabbed something valuable to you. So what if I grabbed your phone or something, and I just smashed it on the ground? Obviously, I've sinned against you. Obviously, something unjust has happened, and what else has happened is that I have incurred a debt against you. I owe you a phone. And so what we can do here is we have three options. We got some debt on the table, and we got three options to deal with that debt, all right? Option number one is I could go out of my way. Uh, I could, myself, the one who smashed your phone, could go, and out of my own expense, I could go buy you a new phone. I could pay off my own debt with my own money, and then hopefully we're all good. That's option one. Here's option two. Option two is you could choose to cancel my debt, but live your life without a phone. So it's kind of like you disregarded the sin. You just said, ah, don't worry about it. But you have to live life without a phone, but I don't pay you anything. Option number three is you could choose, you, the offended party, could choose to go buy for yourself a brand new phone at your own expense. And that way you are paying off my debt, not just canceling my debt. You are paying off the debt that I owe you and you don't have to live life without your phone. See, option number one is not forgiveness because I'm having to pay for what I've done. Okay, that's not forgiveness. Option two maybe is like regular forgiveness or how the world would define forgiveness. It's kind of like a, you know what, let's not worry about it. I'll just cancel it. That's really kind of you. But it's kind of like you're saying that my sin against you didn't matter. Option number three is Christ-like forgiveness because you're paying my debt that I owe you. What I did was serious. You need a phone. And so something needs to be done, but you are taking care of it at your own expense. You're paying it on my behalf. So we have all sinned against God. And the scriptures tell us that we have all incurred a debt against God. But God in his grace and at great cost to himself offered his son Jesus as payment for that debt that we owe God. And so if you're watching this and and you're not a follower of Jesus or you're not sure what you believe about Jesus yet, let me just say that this is the kind of forgiveness that God is offering you. Not a forgiveness where you have to clean your whole life up so that God will accept you, but a forgiveness that has been purchased because Jesus paid the debt that you owe Then he went to the cross, he bore the wrath of God on your behalf, and then what he did is he rose from the dead, verifying that the debt had been paid in full. The offended party, God, has stepped toward the offending party, that's you, that's me, 
And he's offering grace and forgiveness. And the question is, will we accept it? Will we trust our lives into that? And when Paul tells us in the church to forgive one another in the same way that Christ has forgiven us, this is what he's talking about. When we sin against one another, when we let our anger get out of control, when we are selfish, when we let our tongue get loose, we incur debt against one another. The question is this, is when you get offended, when you are sinned against, who is going to pay the debt? If someone says something to you that's offensive, they sinned against you, and you might be angry, and they've incurred a debt against you. Now, you could make them pay the debt by souring the relationship. You know, you could just wait for them to make the first step to you to apologize. You could give them the silent treatment, maybe hoping that that kind of punishment would make them feel guilty. You could shrug it off and pretend it never happened, just kind of cancel out the debt and pretend that that didn't happen. Or you could pay the debt by trusting that Christ has properly dealt with the sin on the cross And then you could go to them directly, let them know how that made you feel, right? We're not minimizing the sin, all right? And then you could forgive them and then look at this, allow the relationship to be restored and not treat them as if they owe you something. Because that's what Christ did for us. So we do this for one another. Now, real quick, I I need to be very clear about this. I have a big caveat that I just want to make sure is crystal clear. What I'm talking about now is regular, everyday conflict in the church. Just everyday conflict in the church. There are ways that we can sin against one another that are more severe. And although we are still called to forgive in a Christ-like way, the process will look much different. So in cases like abuse... Just because you seek to forgive in a Christ-like way does not mean that trust is automatically restored in the relationship. Christ-like forgiveness does not mean that we don't get, the law, get law enforcement involved if the law has been broken. And in some cases, the sin might be so severe or severe enough that the relationship is not restored, although forgiveness is being pursued. So in these kinds of cases, forgiveness needs to be pursued with wise, godly counsel. Okay, So I just want to make that very clear. Right now, though, I'm talking about just normal, everyday conflict in the church. And so Grace Hill, if someone makes you angry, If someone is selfish, if someone is rubbing you the wrong way, if someone has sinned against you with their tongue or any other thing, here's my question. Who are you going to make pay the debt? Who are you going to make pay the debt? Uh, If your spouse, your husband, your wife sins against you, who are you going to make pay the debt? You're going to give them the silent treatment and just wait for them to sit in their guilt until they come make the first step? Or will you, like Christ, make the first step? This is the question I want us to be asking when conflict happens in the church. Who am I going to make pay the debt? Are we going to forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us or not? Because when these cracks form in the armor of the church, it is gospel-centered, Christ-like forgiveness that mends the cracks. And if we refuse to let Christ rule how we deal with conflict, then these cracks will exponentially grow. That domino effect will take over, and it can do a lot of damage in the church. 
And you might say, Alan, this is just radical. That, I mean, people really, they need to pay for what they've done. Well, doesn't that just give all of us a picture of the radical, scandalous grace that God has shown us in and through Christ? And I pray that that will be the kind of forgiveness that exists here. Let me pray for us. Father, I just pray to you right now and just ask that, Lord, if there's just anyone who's listening to this right now and they've just, there's a specific situation that is on their minds, a conflict that they're in, someone that they have bitterness against or anger against, Lord, I just pray that you would help them to understand what Christ-like forgiveness would look like in that situation. And that, Lord, that they would find the motivation to step towards that person in forgiveness because of the forgiveness that they have received by you in and through Jesus. Lord, help us to believe the gospel. This is where the gospel gets on the ground and helps us to live our lives in a way that honors and glorifies you. And so, Lord, I just pray that that would rule in our church. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.